City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 1030 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. I enjoy uh, my fair share of humor, uh, but as I was reflecting on our passage this morning and reflecting on where we have been this summer and the life of our church, I was struck by how much hardship so many of us have been going through. In our church this summer, we have uh, experienced uh, several deaths in our families. Several of us have had uh, significant amounts of pains and struggles in relationship. Many folks here at City Church have have experienced loss. And and even those of you, many of you who are new here to City Church, are going through the, the transition of moving from one place to another. All of these things are things that cause us pain. City Church, so many of us have been experiencing those things this summer. Um, It's almost too many to count. So what's normal is for us as Christians to experience suffering. That's that's hard. We like to think that, well, when when I become a Christian, everything's going to be fine, everything will go my way. The the bread will always land butter side up for me now on. But the hard truth of it is, it just doesn't, does it? That our lives are often plagued by a sort of suffering. Now, it's not normally clustered as bad as it has been for us this summer. Nevertheless, this is normal. And for some of us, this is things that are happening on large scales and small scales. These are big things or it's death by a thousand paper cuts. Sometimes our suffering is caused by our decisions, but oftentimes it's caused by situations around us. And I think the question for many of us this summer, as we reflect on all that we've gone through, on the pain and suffering in our lives and in the lives of those close to us, is what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of these struggles? What do we do with this pain and frustration? How do we handle this? How do I handle this? Maybe this morning the way that we're going to look at it first is how did David handle this? As we walk through the life of David, you kind of see that David's trajectory in the book of 1 Samuel is an upward trajectory. He is the shepherd boy who then miraculously defeats Goliath. He is anointed as king, and even though he is chased and hunted down by Saul, God always seems to give him the victory. And David is always on the up. His stock is always rising. And then David becomes king. And you would expect the story to be, and then David lived happily ever after. Well, that's pretty much the opposite of the case. Once David becomes king things a little bit start coming off the rails. And and in the case of David's life, some of this is the consequence of his sin. We spoke a few weeks ago uh, about David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And a lot of what has happened to David's life ever since then is the fallout, the consequences of those things that he's done. Last week we talked about Absalom, one of his sons, and this son murdered another one of his children, This son um, allowed his sister to be raped, to give him reason for this. There's a lot of drama, but Absalom eventually 
forms a coup and takes over the land of Israel. And David is once again on the run. David is kicked out of his palace. He is expelled from Jerusalem. And he is on the run from Absalom, the king. Well, eventually David and his men, especially uh, his general Joab, uh, has uh, taken over and has killed Absalom. He's fallen in battle. There's a kind of a gory story about Absalom who had a big head of hair. Uh, it weighed, he cut it once a year. The Bible, this is a strange detail that the Bible involves. Uh, he only cut his hair once a year. That's not that strange of a detail. But the strange detail is that every year his hair weighed five pounds when they cut it off. Which is, I have to say, an impressive amount of hair. Uh, but it doesn't work out for him. He ends up, uh, his hair gets tangled in a tree. Um, and that leads to his death. Uh, that's probably about uh, the majority of the comic relief you're going to get today is uh, a joke. Uh, insert your joke about 80s hairband here. So what's David going to do? This son who, who kicked him out, this son who drove him out, who staged a coup, who usurped his throne, is now dead. How's David going to what does that show us about our hearts and the way that we interact with suffering, with grief, and with despair? So what I'd like you to do is stand up. I'm going to read the very end of 2 Samuel 18, and then the first eight verses or so of chapter 19. So if you would, stand with me as I read God's Word. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day. The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people who steal in, who are ashamed when they flee the battle. The king covered his face and then cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then David came into the house. Uh, then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters, and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And it will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. David is absolutely distraught over the loss of his son. But the question for us is, 
what do we learn from this? How do we take this story of a father's grief over the death of his son? I think the, the key lesson for us as we sort of walk through this text, the, the big idea that I think we need to engage with is that our lack of trust in God turns our grief into despair. It turns our normal grieving process into something that is deeper, that is despair. And that transformation, that change, comes from our lack of trust in God. I think it would be helpful to explore what grief and despair are as we begin to think about this. Uh, in many ways, we as a culture have hidden death and suffering from our day-to-day lives. We have pushed it away. What's interesting is, um, can you think of a single cemetery or graveyard in downtown St. Petersburg? There's one. The only cemetery or graveyard in all of downtown St. Pete is the historic Rosa Park Cemetery. The same thing is true of hospice care. You have to go out to 34th Street to get to an inpatient hospice care facility. Why? Why is this the case? Why do our our cities that are newer, that were built more recently, why have we pushed graveyards and cemeteries out? Why do we hide our hospice centers back in neighborhoods and out of the normal day-to-day channels of life? It's because those things, by their very presence, make us uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to drive by a cemetery because you can't drive by without at least flashing the idea of death into your mind. You cannot pass a hospice center without thinking of suffering. And what we have done as a culture is we have pushed all of that away because we don't want to see it. We don't want to be confronted with our mortality. We don't want to be reminded of how much suffering is involved in human life. And so if we can move all of that out into the parts of town that we don't go to, or bury it behind bigger buildings so we don't have to look at it, we're more content. Because we don't like the idea of grieving. We don't like the idea of staring our pain in its face. And yet, grief is a very normal very healthy process that helps us grapple with pain and suffering. It helps us understand our loss. Grief is something that we, as humans, are prone to do and should do. And it can take a number of forms. For some of us, grief can begin to take the form of anger when we let it go. Grief can come in the form of isolation. Or it can be an overwhelming sadness. Grief is something that we all deal with, but grief is never an excuse for us to sin. That's hard, because what happens is, you and I don't want to grieve in a healthy way. We want to grieve by letting our anger out, instead of turning our anger over. We want to grieve by isolating ourselves instead of being around the people that can encourage us. We want to grieve by sitting in our sadness, not by being willing to see 
the good and bad in this life. And not only that, the way that we often handle grief is to cover over it with distractions. You've seen this in your life, and you've seen this in the life of others, because I've seen this in my life, too. When there's something really hard going on in my life, I'm going to do whatever I can to distract myself from that pain. Sometimes I'm going to distract myself with bad things, right? Things like substances that numb me to the pain, to make me forget about it. Other times, I, I want to get involved in unhealthy relationships to help me get through the grieving process, right? This is, this is the concept of a rebound relationship in our culture, right? You had a bad, traumatic experience. Let's just go get a quick, unhealthy relationship and make us ourselves forget what? About the pain that we're actually experiencing. Let's cover that over. Let's, let's not grieve. Let's just be distracted. For some of you, when you're in the midst of grief, the way that you handle it is by doubling down on things like work or fitness. All of these. All of these are ways that we deal with our grief, that we deal with our pain, without thinking about it, without acknowledging it for what it is, without acknowledging that suffering is a part of what we go through as humans. For others of us, we try to take a more religious approach to grief. Well, you know what? I'm a Christian, and I, I, should, I shouldn't uh, feel bad about this. This is just a thing that happened. This is all in God's hand, and that's why I'm going to ignore my pain. That doesn't work out either, does it? Or what about some of us who try to, try to go, no, you know what, I'm going to distract myself by doing good things. See, what happens in each of these cases is, instead of admitting that we are struggling. Instead of being in touch with our pain, instead of letting ourselves go through the natural and godly grieving process, we distract ourselves. We cover over our grief. We pretend our grief doesn't exist. And what we're doing is actually showing what's going on in our hearts. You see, suffering has a way of bringing out what the real idols of our heart what the real sins beneath our sin is. You see, for me, the way this works out, and, and my personality and my set of sinfulness is this. Whenever there is something hard, whenever I experience suffering, my go-to idol is comfort. So whether that is comfort that I can find in any way, in any place, all I want to do is not have to feel the pain of a hard situation. So I'm going to run away. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever it takes not to feel that. I think some of you are in that boat too. But for others, our go-to response when we're in pain is to try to control every scenario around us. Isn't it? I'm going to control everything I can. That way I can manage. Or you know what? I don't want people to see me as weak as I go through this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure everybody knows that I am suffering well. And we want our reputation to be the thing that comes out of the other side. Or maybe it's that we take grief and turn it into the energy that we need to achieve more. So that we feel important and still run away from our pain. And yet, 
Bible says that grief is something that we should experience. It's something that Jesus experienced here on earth. It is the result of sin in this world. But there's grief, and then there's something deeper. That thing that is deeper is despair. While grief is a natural way to work through things, while grief is something, yes, we try to cover over sometimes, despair is something deeper. Despair is grief coupled with an absolute loss of hope. Despair is when we're hopeless. Despair in the face of pain is when we say that the wounds of this situation, the, the, the scars of this moment are so deep, I don't think they will ever heal. That's despair. That's when we believe that there is nothing good that can come of this, that I will never feel right again. And while grief is something that we should experience, and that is a way for us to process suffering, despair is a life of faithlessness. It is hopeless because it is faithless. And what we're saying in despair is usually one of two things. Either that we don't believe God is there, that I am alone, that I am an orphan, and I have to figure all this out on my own. And that if I can't heal myself, if I can't fix it, then I will never be fixed. Because God's not coming. Or, it's a belief that God is cruel. That God is there. That He could help. And that He chooses not to because he doesn't like me and doesn't want to have me. See, those are the two ways that we begin to go down into the pit of despair. Where the normal sufferings of our lives, the things that happen around us because of the brokenness of this world, when that happens to us, and we just begin to not just grieve, but to go to something deeper. Despair cuts us off from hope, and it cuts us off from any source of hope and encouragement in our life. And yet, again, this is something that Jesus is well acquainted with. As I read this passage and I thought about the grieving, as I thought about hope and despair, I was reminded of the Psalm of the Suffering Servant, which is a psalm that's not in the book of Psalms. No, it's a little confusing. It's in Isaiah. And as Isaiah begins to predict who Jesus is, as he looks forward to who Jesus is, he gives us a very different picture of who we expect our Savior to be. Isaiah begins to describe Jesus, and he says, He is a man of sorrows. That he is well acquainted with grief. And as we look at the life of Jesus, we can see that. We can see that he experienced loss that he experienced betrayal, that he suffered not just physical pain, but the emotional pain that we as humans go through. So our Savior is a suffering Savior. See, if I was to put my best foot forward, if I was to create a religion, I would create a religion with a hero, not a sufferer. And yet Jesus was a suffering servant. The man of sorrows. Someone who is well acquainted with grief. But not only was he well acquainted with it, that same 
passage in Isaiah says that he bore our grief. That he carries our sorrows. You see, part of what Jesus does, part of who Jesus is, is he is the one who walks beside us. Who can sympathize and understands what our struggles are because he has experienced those same things in his life on earth. That he has walked through sorrow, pain, and loss. That he knows what it's like to lose a family member to death. He knows what it's like to see relationships fall apart around him. He knows what it's like to have death by a thousand paper cuts of discouragement. And he walks through that with us, his people. You see, what's interesting is we find in the story of David, David walking through this grief. David being absolutely despondent, and yet he is encouraged, aggressively encouraged, but encouraged nonetheless by his commander Joab, who says, look, what you're doing is not grieving. You're acting in despair. Because now, not only is your grief something that you are dealing with between you and God, but you are causing all of the people around you who fought for you, who were willing to bleed and die for you, you are causing all of them to feel shame because the only person you can think about is yourself, and Absalom. It's interesting because it is that community. It is that community of, of love and trust that calls David out of despair. Yes, to grieve, but not to grieve as those without hope. And so David goes back and he sits at the gate. He begins to live his life in a normal way. Now, does it say that David sat at the gate and everything was fine? No. Does it say that David sat at the gate and, and had a rousing party? No. Because grief takes time. Because grief is something we have to process. And yet, grief is something that propelled David. It's interesting as David was grieving, though, that he gives us a picture the very end of chapter 18, when David first hears about his son. He says, Absalom, Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son, would that I would have died in your place. Which is no accident. Because it is the great, great grandson of David, Jesus, who does die in our place. It is the son of David who dies to pay for our sin. And not just our sins. He doesn't just rid us of our guilt through the cross. He doesn't just take away our shame. But he becomes for us the God of comfort. The God who has suffered and risen again. The God who has suffered and knows what it's like to walk with his people. And so the call for us as we, as city church, as people in city church, as people here in St. Petersburg, walk through these moments, these heavy moments of pain and loss, we're called to remember that we have a Savior who has suffered, who knows what it's like to be well acquainted with grief, and yet who calls us into his family, not just for ourselves, but so that we could be Joab, so that we could be the ones that are calling others to love and faithfulness. You see, when we are suffering the way that our grief should take shape is by looking to Jesus to be the one who calls our hearts. Not to our distractions. Not to our idols. 
not to the things that we want to give us pleasure or achievement or reputation, but rather to the God who walks with us and loves us. And what happens is we begin in that moment, when we begin to look up instead of looking around in our grief, we begin to have hope. That the God who suffered and rose again is the same God who can give me hope, who can bring me out of this pit of grief. And this hope allows us to comfort others. You know, it's interesting. I want to read to you passage that's very similar, that's related to this, from uh, St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer, so that we will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted to the prayers of many. He says right before this, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. City Church, Jesus not only delivers us from hopelessness into hope, not only takes us from being orphans to making us sons and daughters of the King, but because of that transformation, He works in our lives. He makes us the agents of hope in St. Petersburg. He makes us the channel by which He is sending out His love to this city. By the way that we can comfort others. Even though we, too, experience suffering. May we turn to God and not to so many other things. May we trust in Him and not be left to hopelessness. And may the Holy Spirit do that in your heart. Let's pray.